Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hi, everyone. I'm Kate Clark from The Information. I am delighted to be here with Laura today to talk about the Cryptopians. Thanks for joining us, Laura. Yeah, well, I'm super excited to be here at an in-person event. I know. It's crazy. Um, Laura is the host and producer of the popular crypto podcast, Unchained. And she was a journalist for the past 20 years, a former senior editor at Forbes, and one of the first reporters to fully embrace the crypto sector and exclusively cover the crazy industry that that is. So when you first did that back in 2017, did everyone think you were completely nuts? Um, well, little known secret, actually, your publication wanted to hire me I think, oh. to cover crypto. Yes. Oh, no. Well, why didn't you join um, us? So, well, because I was freelancing for Forbes and they were like, oh, no, 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 no. You're going to come work for us mm-hmm. full time. And, you know, I knew those editors, so I ended up just sticking with them. Well, I'm sad but, that you didn't join us, but. Yes. Well, you know, I, I still talk to Jessica and, you know, mm-hmm. and now we're working this this way. Right. And so, now we are. Yes. So tell us a little bit about the process for this book. I think we were just chatting a little bit about this backstage, but writing a book is a very difficult thing and you accomplished it. So congratulations. Thank but you. When did you start working on the book? How much interviewing, how many hours, you know, were you sitting down with people like Vitalik Buterin to get this book published? So I got the contract in the fall of 2018, but I actually don't feel like I really in earnest uh, got into the meat of things until probably like 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember, I think I, I did. Yeah. Oh my God. I remember this. I did, um, a very, very long series of interviews with Vitalik on, it started on Thanksgiving, 2018. And I skipped Thanksgiving with my family <laughs> because Canada's Thanksgiving is on a different day. And he was like, this is the day I'm available. And I was like, okay, all right, I'm flying up there. So, um, I remember we did like a three and a half hour long interview that first day. And then over the course of writing the book, you know, we did more in-person interviews. We also did more phone interviews. We also then were kind of like chatting on the regular. And so it was just like a mix of things, but you know, Obviously, for this kind of book, um, especially for those of you who've read it, um, you know, you'll see there are probably things in there that, you know, certain people in the book probably wouldn't want others to know. And so there were moments when things got tense and um, there was definitely a moment in time when he stopped talking to me. And so, um, I could not get him to talk to me and I had more questions. So I saw that he was going to be at East Denver. And so I literally was just like, all right, because he spends a lot of time in Asia. And I was like, okay, if he's going to be in Denver, then I am going to fly to East Denver and I am going to show up in person. And yes, within five minutes of walking in, I see him. And so I walked up to him, could not ignore me. And so, yes, he finally continued the, the interviews uh, with me after that. And so I was able to That's get the amazing. information I needed. Yes. Um, so anyway, yeah, I talked to like more than 200 people. Um, and, you know, some of, some of it was like people weren't super open to talking and then others, um, yeah, very much wanted to talk. We're very open, shared, you know, photos with me that I, as you'll read in the book, there are some very, uh, kind of secret phone recordings I was able to get, um, where definitely certain parties on those calls would probably not want those to be public. And, um, you know, I was able to get videos and, um, links to certain things. And I mean, there, there's just a lot of information that my sources yeah. shared with me. So, yeah, I mean, if you've read the book, it is absolutely jam packed with un- really amazing detail, obviously a ton of unreported scoops. 
I'm wondering how difficult that was for you to sit on just so, I mean, you probably could have written a thousand stories with what you have in this book. I know. I know. Actually, it was really hard sitting on it for that long. Like for some of this stuff, especially, um, I, you know, I was a little nervous, like, oh, what if this gets reported before I can reveal it in my book? Like, for instance, people who follow me on Twitter might have noticed this weekend and even extending into now I'm in this like Twitter spat with Charles Hoskinson, who's one of the Ethereum co-founders. And, um, you know, you'll read in the book, if you haven't yet, that the people that were kind of like living and working with him at that time say, uh, basically he, you know, he, let's just say he had a certain, um, uh, tenuous relationship with the facts and, um, <laughs> like to, to, you nice know, way to put it. Exactly. Um, so anyway, so he tweeted about my book that it was a work of fiction, which seemed kind of rich coming from him in particular. And what I had found out in the course of writing my book was that, um, his claims about his education don't match up with the school's records. And so I tweeted to him, you know, screenshots of his tweets where he said this thing about how he had been getting a PhD, but he dropped out of his PhD, PhD program. And, you know, spoiler alert, um, actually the schools say he was enrolled as an undergrad and never finished his undergrad degree. And, you know, one of the schools was like, we don't even have a graduate program in math. <laughs> so anyway, um, so I tweeted all this at him and now it's this huge thing. It was like massive. It's got like tons of likes on Twitter and now there's a big Reddit thread about it and all this stuff. But I, f I found this out like what, I don't know, two or three years ago or something. And so this whole time, you know, I was like, what if somebody else finds this out before me? Um, and what if it comes out before my book? But it didn't. And frankly, I was worried that he might, um, do something about that himself and like come clean before my book came out because, you know, I just sent the fact checking on this like months ago right. and his whole team had the fact checking and I sent multiple emails about it and they just never responded. But I was like, well, what they could do was like preempt my book and just mm -hmm. like break the news themselves and be like, Oh, by the way, you know, but they didn't. And so anyway, so yeah, there are multiple things like that. You're right. It was, it was, that's frankly, the difficulty yeah. of writing a book, right? Exactly. And as you were spending months and months fact checking and, you know, finishing the final details of details of this book, the crypto industry is exploding in a way that you probably couldn't have, I don't think anyone could have seen coming. Right. And a lot of that is tied to the NFT craze, you know, the board Ape Yacht Club, the crypto punks, all yes. things that you mentioned at the very end of your book. But I'm curious, like looking back on 2021, early 2021, what, what did you make of the way the industry was behaving and everything that was going down? Oh, well, I mean, to me, it was like, oh, it looks like a second cryptocurrency craze. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like, it looks like, um, yeah, the beginnings of the ICO craze is just, it's not ICOs anymore. Now it's NFTs and mm -hmm. stuff. Um, but frankly, you know, not going to lie. A part of me was like, oh, it's going to be good for my book because like more people are getting into this sure. stuff. You I'm know? sure it will so, be. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like multiple people, um, have said to me, oh, your timing is impeccable. And I'm like, I didn't do this, you know? Um, but yeah, yeah. Right. No, I mean, it is impeccable. And it, I think a lot of people are really interested in understanding the backstory to Ethereum, but also just these, these names like Vitalik. I mean, I, I wonder if you considered even just writing like a, a bi focusing fully just on him or if that's something that you would consider doing writing. A, oh, that's you know. interesting. You know, I had not, um, but uh, I think actually the book does end up being about him yeah. um, in a way that I didn't anticipate when I started writing it. Um, you know, I, so, so my idea for the book was just, wow, like, you know, I lived through this crazy period in 2017 where 
And I watched the, you know, I was in, I was like talking to all these sources and I was finding out about the early ICOs in 2016. And I just did not anticipate it would snowball the way that it eventually did. And my own life was, was changing very rapidly. It was like, you know, I had been covering this. I don't want to say it was like a sleepy beat, but it definitely was not something that a lot of people cared about. Right. And then suddenly it was just like, I couldn't keep up. And like, suddenly the whole outside world was very interested. And so living through that, you know, I just knew something significant and and historical happened. And so my idea was just like, I should write a book about how this happened. And I actually didn't even realize that the book was going to be so focused on Ethereum from the start, because I actually, my initial conception for the book was even that um, kind of how Coinbase became the on-ramp, like to bringing Mm -hmm. money into the system was going to be part of it. But then frankly, the book is already so long. So at a certain point, I actually have a bunch of reporting on Coinbase and at a certain point I might publish it in some fashion. Write a book on Coinbase. I know, exactly. Well, there's already a very good book out there on it, Kings of Crypto by Jeff Roberts. Um, But I, um, yeah, I just suddenly was like, oh, the real real story is Ethereum and it's a more interesting story. But like I said, when I went to focus on that, I still don't think I really fully understood that that whole period also you know, ended up being this coming of age story for Vitalik. But by the end, clearly from the material I had, I recognized that that was the case as well. So I actually do think in a, in a weird way that I didn't intend the book sort of ends up being about Vitalik. Yeah. I mean, I think that the coming of age story of Vitalik is really the most interesting part of the book. And I'm curious. So, so the book focuses a lot on kind of his, his insecurities and his leadership style, which is somewhat non-existent early on. And he, you know, he's very conflict averse and, I think he, you know, interacting with his fellow founders is very difficult for him. Clearly, so a lot of a lot of the book details kind of him growing, and and you know, frankly, at the end, he's still not a very good leader. I think in a lot of ways. Right. But I'm curious how your impression of him, like, where did it start? You know, back in 2017, 2018, when you're getting going, and and where does it kind of sit now? Um. Well, I so I do think he grew a lot mm-hmm. during that period. You know, um, I mean just even watching the video from the North American Bitcoin conference in Miami, where he first presented Ethereum. I mean, like, you know, he's got like pimples on his face and he's like literally how old was he at the time? He was 19. I mean, he was days away from turning 20, but still he just seemed like so much of a teenager. And, you know, it is true by the end. It's not like he's a great leader or anything like that, but he's definitely matured a little bit more by the end. And he, at least I think, by the end, maybe recognized that some of the judgments he made early on about people were, were, you know, kind of off and that like he needed to, to try to be a better judge of people's character. Um, you know, by the end people, so again, sorry, if you haven't read it, so there's a little bit of a spoiler, but at that point, like he's kind of got more of just like trusted advisors around him. And it is true that that aspect also brings criticism on him, but I do think that it's sort of helped him at least cope um, with the fact that he was surrounded by all these opportunists and it like, just, I'm sure it, you know, is happening even today. And so that's how he like vets things and, you know, tries to just um, not have kind of what happened in the early days of Ethereum when he sort of let these unscrupulous people gain more power and influence than they should have. He, you know, uses his trusted advisors now to prevent that from happening yeah. again. So Right. I mean, he grows in his ability to take a stand for what he believes in a little bit. At one point, someone you interviewed says that 
Vitalik's views were like an inflatable dancing air doll flapping about in the wind. And he, these, these people that you talk to detail just how easily manipulated he was, which I found to be really interesting as someone who didn't really realize what his inner circle was like. So this created a really big issue early on because a lot of his trusted advisors wanted to create a crypto Google, as you described it, uh, or right. a for-profit business, whereas he was adamantly opposed to that. But I still think he, he really struggled with being able to make that clear, right, to the people yeah. in his inner circle. Yeah, because, you know, these other people, um, they were just older and sort of more forceful in their personalities. And he is the kind of person he wants consensus, like... Like, you know, in the blockchain world, you've probably heard, like, everybody values decentralization. And Vitalik really embodies that in mm -hmm. a very interesting way. I mean, he really wants everybody to kind of come to consensus and for it to be a group decision. And um, so, yeah, so for that reason, I think that's another reason why he, like, wasn't so keen on just kind of imposing his will. Um, but that then meant that the people who kind of had their own motives that were um, even if they weren't like ulterior motives, they were definitely greedier motives, you know, right. more self-interested motives. Like that gave them an opportunity to kind of, you know, try to force things their way. And that's sort of what happened in the beginning. But, you know, ultimately, I think he he was able to assert himself, frankly, just because I think he well, basically. Yeah, you'll read. Sorry. Sorry to give all these spoilers. But yes, there, there was a group of people. They sort of kind of maneuvered this coup, um, which yeah, led to some of the people that kind of were more on the side of the crypto Google being booted from the project. Right. And early on, Vitalik chose not to be, well, I guess someone sort of, someone else chose to be CEO of Ethereum kind of early on. He, Vitalik's title was C3PO, which I really yes. liked. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he wasn't motivated by ego and all these other people around him are, are very much so motivated by money and ego and, and greed. And that's kind of a core theme of the book. Um, have you heard anything from Vitalik this week? Like, do you have any sense of what he thinks of the book? No, um, I have not heard from him. I think maybe we're in the phase again where he isn't talking to me. Um, but <laughs> I do know that when I did my book reading at the Strand last week, that the moderator for that event had recently spoken to him. And she said that, you know, they were having this great conversation. She was asking about all these things. So for those of you who are more technical, like she, she was asking about wormhole bridges and he was like happy to talk about all that. And then she said, have you read Laura Shin's book? And he was like, no, <laughs> one word answer. Uh, so yes, I, I think, um, you know, he probably has mixed feelings just because it does expose a lot. Um, but I do know from other people in the Ethereum community, they have said for the parts that they live through, um, that they feel that my book is extremely accurate to their experience. So I feel good about that. You know, I, I worked really hard to make it as accurate as I could and to like get everybody's input, at least for the people who would talk to me. So um, you know, the feedback I've gotten so far is that, yeah, it is pretty accurate to what people experienced. And I'm sure that was something you were concerned about a little bit, just what the reaction would be. I mean, one of the things we were talking about earlier is in the book, you'll notice a lot of people don't share the same memory, you know, of the same event. So there's a lot of people who are kind of essentially denying something took place. And I think that must have caused you just endless headaches throughout the reporting process. I mean, what was that like for you to, to deal with? Yeah, yeah, this this was a challenge. Um, for some of the things where there were multiple people uh, in at one event, um, I was able to 
uh, kind of like cross check just by asking all the other people. I'm granted this is extremely time consuming, but you know, I, I did it cause I, I wanted to get things down as accurately as I could. So that helped. Um, but then also there were certain things like, so there's this one event that is named in the book as the game of Thrones day. And, um, there was one person there who, uh, so this event took place in Switzerland and one person like never went to Switzerland except for this one event. So their memories were so much sharper than everybody else's, like just like where they had specific conversations and what was said. And just like, I mean, they, their memories were just like crystal clear because they, it, it was not being mixed up with any other memory of being there at that time. Whereas like there was this other, uh, group of, it was frankly a couple and they kept saying, Oh, you know, at that meeting, this person was there and they said, da, da, da. Okay. I checked with that person. He was like, I was in the U S I was moving across the country. I definitely wasn't in Switzerland that day. And I was like, Oh, okay. So then I just realized like, okay, they lived in Switzerland. So their memories are just all jumbled up with all the other meetings. And so then like through that kind of process of elimination, you can kind of figure out like what actually happened. And, um, as you'll read in the book, you know, for certain things where I just couldn't really square it, you might get like one version and then it might be like, you know, other people don't remember this or whatever. So, you know, I, I would caveat things like that, but it's the reality of writing a book. I think people don't realize is just not only how much interviewing and, countless hours you're sitting with these with these people but then how much denial you're going to get and how many people you have to go to to fact check and one of the people at the center of this book who is who is somewhat torn apart by the people you've talked to is is ming chan who was an early executive at the ethereum foundation the executive director Mm -hmm. yeah yeah she was the first official executive director so she is someone in this book who was very important to the foundation early on but who was pretty despised by a lot of her colleagues and and who people felt was also manipulating Vitalik into doing the things that she wanted. Um, and it was just someone who I'd never heard of. Um, I read the book and was really surprised at just how central she was to this story. When you went in early on starting this process, did you have a relationship with her? Were you familiar with her? Did you expect her to be a center of this, of this book? So I had heard in 2017, you know, people wanted her out. Um, but I... Like, like, you know, for what that is, that's just like the tip of the iceberg, because definitely when I went to report the book, I did not know the extent of all that and like how it had been building over years. And this is, you know, stuff that I learned in the reporting. So, you know, when I went to go write this, I really did not know at all just how much that particular storyline would be such a big storyline. But, um, you know, many, many people spoke to me about that whole situation and, um, you know, one, one thing that was a little bit difficult in the beginning was just the way people spoke about her. Um, it was so extreme that it seemed almost unbelievable. And so, um, eventually when I was able to get a lot of her, um, you know, texts in the chat logs and stuff like that, like, and you're hearing her in her own words, then, then I started to understand because yeah, that then, you know, just seeing the way she was, you know, writing these texts, Providing you the evidence you needed. Exactly. Like then I, I got a personal, you know, um, sense of like what it was like to interact with her, even if it was just through that. And ultimately you'll read at the end, we, we did not ever speak. Um, so, I mean, she did send me an email at one point saying she couldn't do an interview at that time, but then after that, she, she just never responded. Um, so yeah, I did not know, uh, when I went to write this, just how big of a storyline that would be, but yeah. it's kind of the central. Definitely. And it yeah. came as a surprise. I mean, there's many things said about her. One of them is, 
You could literally put her on mute and unmute her 30 minutes later and just say, yeah, uh uh-huh, mm-hmm. Occasionally, one developer would later recall. So basically, you know, she would she would call people up and she would she would vent for hours, um, including Vitalik, who was a pretty important person at the time who I imagine was busy. Um, what else would she do? Why, why, why else did she develop such enemies on the Ethereum foundation team? Well, yeah, this is definitely getting into, I didn't, I mean, honestly, there were on, there were so many shocking things, but one of the things was, um, she would tell people, on the staff that like, oh, these other people on staff had embezzled money. And she accused like multiple people of having done that. And as far as I can tell, she never gathered any evidence of it. She never confronted any of these people with evidence of it. She never like did any kind of investigation, but she would constantly tell people that these other people had embezzled money from the foundation. And I asked Vitalik if he looked into it and he didn't, he said he trusted her and stuff like that. So Stuff like that was like was super shocking. I mean, she was the executive director of the foundation, and she's like bad mouthing all these people afterward. And as far as I can tell, I don't think she even looked into it, but she would say these things. So stuff like that. I mean, but he did deeply trust her, right? And that was an issue because I mean, I don't think it's spoiling anything, but I mean, a, a lot of these people in this book wanted her fired for a very long time, but she was very close to Vitalik. He really, I think they had a great, a close friendship. Um, it's unclear kind of what their relationship was really like, but he didn't want her fired because he did feel like that, that was one of the few really trust, trusted confidants in his inner circle. Right. Yeah. I mean, I do think it started to change finally. So she was hired in the summer of 2015. And then I think in the spring of 2016 is when he kind of first had his, you know, I think, uh, you know, they, they kind of had like been close in the beginning and then they started to grow apart. And then, yeah, I think at some point in 2016 is when he started to entertain the idea of getting rid of her. But, you know, at that time he was like 20, whatever, 23 right. or something. So, or, so young. Yeah. And just like, yeah, him and some of the other people, again, who were very young, they kind of were like, oh, like maybe we should try to get rid of me. But they just didn't know how to do it. And she right. was, you know, nearly 50. She was just like a lot older and they knew she wouldn't go easily. And, you know, Vitalik, he doesn't do well with difficult personalities. He, he has a hard time confronting people. He has a time, hard time asserting his own will. And when you have somebody who is that dominant of a a personality, like it just, yeah, it ended up dragging out very long. You'll read all about it in the book, but, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing that it's easy to forget reading it or even just reading about Vitalik in any format is how young he is. But you, I mean, you have such great details on that. Like one of the scenes where, somebody i can't remember who is trying to get him to try smoking weed for the first time right and and they almost convinced him i don't really know what like how, how they knew that but they almost convinced him and then something happened like they got distracted and, and he didn't do it but it yeah. was like you know yeah. it's truly a coming of age tale for for him yeah yeah no definitely i mean there were so many like that first weekend in miami when uh, all the ethereum co-founders gathered um people had such funny stories like um, he was trying to learn Chinese on this app. And because I think he's a little bit socially awkward, like he would be whipping out his phone and like learning Chinese on his app, even when they're all like in a car together or like at a restaurant or, you know, like he just, because he, I don't know, didn't really, he had a hard time interacting with people. So he'd be mm-hmm. like, I'm learning Chinese on my phone. He'd be like staring at his phone and you know, whatever. So, um, yeah. So on going back to Ming, um, she is one of few women that was really part of that early Ethereum story, the, fa- the founding sort of, if you will. Um, I'm curious, like with that said, 
Did you feel more sensitive to some of the accusations that were being made against her because she was kind of the only woman in a lot of these situations and perhaps might have been discriminated against a little bit more than her male colleagues? So I do have to say, you know, as much as I uh, am proud of the book and like, you know, really enjoyed writing it and reporting it and everything. um, Yeah, one thing that... Uh, I'm not a fan of, and of course, this is like a history, so my opinion of things doesn't really matter. It's just I presented the facts and whatever. But yeah, one thing that disturbs me about my own book is the fact that there's um, not that many women, but like probably a good percentage of them don't come across well. Uh, You know, Ming is one. There is another one um, who also doesn't come across well. I mean, there are some that come across well, but like, you know, that just kind of pained me because obviously I want to see more women in crypto, like not right. fewer. Um, but yeah, there was definitely, um, just attention around that, uh, that I felt, but like, I wasn't going to let it affect my reporting, you know, cause especially right. in, in the cases I mentioned with Ming, once I saw the chats, then I realized, okay, the, the interviews line up with, um, my own evidence of like what she was like. And so then of course, you know, it's just, it, it just doesn't really matter. Right. Um, but yeah, it yeah. was kind of an uncomfortable thing. Yeah. I mean, when I was first reading the Ming parts of the book, I was like, Oh, I think, you know, there's probably a double standard here. She's surrounded by these men. They didn't like her, but then yeah, once you sort of present more evidence, it becomes very clear that she's sort of, she's an, ex- she's a very much an extreme, Yeah. but I can imagine. I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously not your fault. It's the industry. And, and the book is a reflection of what the industry was like at that time. Do you think that if you were to go back now and say, write a book about the last four or four years, do you think it would have a lot more women in it or what's, yeah. what's your view on that? Okay. It would. I mean, for sure. I mean, I've been covering crypto for almost seven years and definitely there's way more women now than there were in 2015. I'm for any of you who are in crypto in 2015, you will know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, now there's like so many more women. It's certainly not enough. There definitely could be a lot more. Um, I mean, obviously, because I think, um, for like any conference you go to or, or, um, yeah, even if I look oh, at yeah. like, yeah, the subscriber list on my newsletter or whatever, just like, it's very obvious that it's like mostly men, but, um, there's so many more women and it's fun. And I feel like with NFTs, you know, that's kind of drawing in a new crowd. And so my personal feeling is like, we're not going to have mainstream adoption until women are into crypto, you know, just because, yep. um, I don't know. I feel like even now, you know, if I talk to strangers and they, we end up talking about crypto, like they just have this view of it where it's like this other thing. And it's just like only guys are into it or, you know, whatever their stereotypes are. Mm -hmm. So I feel like only once you have kind of a broader group of people, will will people sort of accept it more? Yeah. And it it seems like it's, it's improved a lot in terms of gender, but I was just at the Ethereum Denver conference a couple weeks ago and, you know, still maybe not, I mean, if I'm being generous, 80% male. Yeah. Probably 90 though. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I also just want to remind everyone to write questions on your cards um, and then send them up this way so that when we get to questions in about 20 minutes, um, I'll have them here. Um, So one of the, I mean, a huge theme of this book is also DAOs, the the birth of DAOs, which I'm sure, you know, probably everybody is familiar with them because they were such a a huge topic in 2021 alongside NFTs and kind of continuing into 2022 have been a big topic. Like for me, from where I sit, you know, I heard of them, I think probably for the first time last year. I, oh, wow. okay. Yeah, I was not, you know, I'm not a crypto focused journalist covering venture capital hadn't really come up. I think I can't really remember. But then the Constitution Dow sort of made everyone in the world pay attention. But, right. you know, then I'm reading your book and you have 
is it 2017 is like the, or what year? 2016 is is when they, exactly. So, so yeah, I mean, what do you recall about when you first started hearing about DAOs and did you think, oh, wow, this is something that's going to really stick and make a huge impact on the crypto industry? Oh, wow. So I don't remember when I first had heard about DAOs. Um, I mean, yeah, probably sometime in that 2015, 2016 Mm -hmm. area, because just a lot of people were like theorizing about them even before the actual DAO was created, which is how they had this idea. Because um, like, I think Dan Larimer of BitShare, I mean, these are names, if you, if you don't know who that is, not super important, but but basically they were kind of like early crypto people. I think we're like writing about these ideas and Vitalik would talk about them too. And so um, I think that is like what captured the imagination of this group of people that um, they had this idea basically for kind of a startup, but they were like, oh, it's like so uncool to go for venture capital. So we're going to get funded by a DAO. And and so that was how this DAO thing got created. Um, but yeah, I honestly will have to say that I have been very fascinated by DAOs kind of from the beginning. And um, it's just, you know, sometimes in interviews, people will be like, oh, you know, what are you most excited about? Or what are you keeping an eye on? And for sure, for me, it's DAOs. Like mm-hmm. that for me is the thing more than NFTs, more than DeFi. Like I'm just very interested in DAOs because I, you know, Bitcoin was the first DAO. Mm-hmm. Um, and by da- so for people who don't know, a DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization. And what it means is like the way that Bitcoin, you know, now has become this asset worth roughly a trillion dollars, but has done it without like a CEO or without a board or without hiring employees like you know only certain companies in the world become big enough that they're that it, they have like a trillion dollar market cap but bitcoin did this without any executive direction it's kind of amazing and it's just like you know they like bitcoin has incentives built into the coin it like incentivizes these different behaviors on the network mm-hmm. and so um that's basically what a dao is is like you know this decentralized crypto network um you know usually often the token holders will use the token to govern, like they'll do voting and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I'm very interested in DAOs. However, the original DAO, I don't know if I would really credit it as being a DAO, especially because it never really got off the ground. Um, but yeah, that, that ends up being like a whole saga in the middle of the book. Yeah, the DAO, right. There's a, there's, there's a lot of drama surrounding DAOs. I, I would not have believed it if like a year ago you would have told me I would be this interested in reading as much of these details about these DAO wars, but it's incredibly interesting. You'll have to read the book to to learn more about that. But part of part of the ICO craze that was an issue is that it kind of tainted the public's view of the crypto industry because there was so much fraud. Now in 2021, 2022, there are a lot of DAOs, DAOs, you know, whatever that I think a lot of people can't explain what they are. So there's a there's a loose there's a loose definition there. Yeah. And there are a lot. And the same same goes for the NFT space. Do you worry now? I mean, as somebody who you're covering this industry, of course, you want people to take it seriously. Do you worry about what the impact of those buzzy, buzzy trends might have on on the legitimacy of crypto? No, no, I don't. I mean, honestly, yeah, just I guess as a reporter, it's it's like whatever happens, happens and I'll like cover it after, (laughs) you know. Um, So honestly, I mean, yeah. Hopefully no crypto people will like think I'm like actively rooting for things to go wrong. But when things go wrong, that's a good story. You know what it's I'm true. saying? So like, well, I there's going to, yeah, there's, there's clearly been a lot of fraud going. I think personally, I think with the NFT yes. boom, I mean, the amount of capital that went in, 
in 2021 versus 2020 is hilarious. I can't remember what the stat was, but it was like 150 million versus like 22 billion. Right. Like, yeah, it's just a complete overnight explosion. So, you know, inevitably there's going to be those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. The big thing now is uh, they're called rug pulls for those of you who don't know, basically like you are, you know, you get excited about this NFT project. You're like, oh, they're going to do all these cool things. I'm going to get this like JPEG and whatever. And then um, like, well, actually a really good one. This is a very easy example. When Squid Game, the TV show became popular, then these people were going to be like, they were like, we're going to create the squid token. And instead they got $3 million for their squid token. And they were like, peace out. And they like closed down the whole thing and they just took the money and ran. So that's, that's a good example of a rug pull. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's definitely happening quite a bit. Yeah. So you said clearly that you were a big fan of DAOs. You're really interested in the innovations there. What are some other areas that are really interesting to you now that you've finished the book and you can probably, you probably have more time to kind of think and explore other areas. What is really interesting to you? So, um, I actually just want to expound on DAOs a little bit more. Um, one thing that was fascinating to me was I recently did a podcast on a new product by a company called Syndicate DAO, and they have this new tool that allows you to create what they call a Web3 investment club. And um, a Web3 investment club is uh, 99 people or fewer, and that's because if it's more than that, then you will be regulated by the SEC. Um, but basically, they're you know what they sound like investment clubs. So it's just like a group of friends, and then maybe they have a wallet or like a multi-sig. It's called, which is a wallet that you know maybe there's like five um, people who can. Uh, who are approved to sign a transaction and then any three of them will be used to actually make the transaction happen. And what they'll do is it's basically like a group of friends and then they, um, you know, maybe like one person is super into DeFi and then another person's really into NFTs and um, they'll make kind of like investment decisions for the group and they'll kind of like invest together and then um, everybody sort of shares in the expertise of the, the few people who specialize in those areas and, you know, they kind of reap the benefits together and speaking, you know, about your question about women, one thing that was fascinating is when I did the interview, they said, oh, um, the in, for the initial cohort of Web3 investment clubs that we're launching, half of the groups are either all female DAOs or led by women. And, um, and you know, they were like, we didn't plan to do that. It just naturally happened. And we only just went to, we only realized it when we went to launch. And I think what's so cool about that is, you know, I asked them, well, how do you think it happened if, you know, you didn't intend for that? And they said, oh, well, we just think that it's sort of like mission alignment. Um, you know, this idea of kind of a Web3 investment club where it's like for the group and it's very much about um, sharing the, the gains with everybody and it's not like so competitive. Um, and so they sort of just naturally found mm -hmm. kind of like these female VCs who were interested in this and stuff like that. And so... Um, I just find that fascinating that, like, in this very natural way, they were getting more women involved. Um, so, yeah, so I've, like, got, I've, I'm keeping my eye on that because I, yeah. I want to follow that story more. And some of those women were saying, like, come back to us because we have more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, given that I cover venture capital, I'm really interested to see how DAOs are providing different funding mechanisms for a lot of entrepreneurs, and they're kind of bypassing venture capitalists as a result. I'm curious, like, there's... At East Denver, one thing I noticed after talking to a lot of entrepreneurs there is that, like, they don't want to work with VCs. They're not really interested in working with, like, the suits and whatever, you know, whatever they call them. Yes. Um, and 
you know, there's some VCs in your book. You talk about Tim Draper, who was a big early advocate of a lot of crypto companies. But is that something that you picked up on, picked up on too in the course of your reporting? Is just that kind of like lack of a desire to team with venture capitalists in the crypto world? Oh yeah, yeah. This has been a theme throughout. Um, so for those of you who are in crypto, you you might know about these debates. Like in 2019, they were calling it fair launch coins versus VC coins. And what that means is the VC coins were ones where like the early um, development of them was funded by VCs. And then the fair launch ones were the ones where um, they were just launched as a project for the community and they didn't like pre-mine coins, meaning they didn't kind of like generate coins and then allocate them out to some early people. It was just like whoever got in early, sort of like Bitcoin could, you know, get in early basically. Um, and then now in the last, uh, I don't know how long this has been going, maybe the last six to nine months, there's been this um, debate where like, yeah, Jack Dorsey, the former CEO of Twitter is very critical of what he calls Web3 and probably the main proponents of Web3 are like Andreessen Horowitz Crypto. Um, probably Chris Dixon is maybe known as like the person who kind of, uh, he, he's with Andreessen Horowitz Crypto and he is always talking about Web3. And so, yeah, they like get into these Twitter fights and they criticize each other. And it, But it's the same thing. It's like essentially the VC coins versus fair launch coins debate. And yeah, I mean, you will read That's why yeah. the, the people who had this idea to create the DAO in the book, they didn't want to get VC money because that's not <laughs> cool. And so they were like, we're going to get money from this DAO. Way. And yeah. What do you make of, you just mentioned Web3. What do you make of this Web3 movement? Because that too, I mean, I know the term Web3 was being used for many years, but not until very recently has it become like, I mean, at least in my bubble, a household term. Yeah. And I, I think it's just like a marketing term, you know, it's yeah. like. Yeah, they were using the word Web3 even back, you know, the years that my book covered. But um, I feel like now it's sort of a rebranding of crypto yeah. because it's really just crypto. It's just they use the word Web3 now, basically, mm-hmm. and it's sort of somehow more consumer friendly. Fun. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I basically think it's like literally the same stuff we've been talking about, but it's just different term. Yeah. I mean, a lot, a lot has changed since you started writing the book, like you probably have so many more friends and family who are interested in crypto than you did when you got going for only years because ago. of NFTs, yeah. only because of NFTs, because, you know, I have a lot of friends who are creative types. Yeah. So before they definitely were not interested, whenever I would talk about crypto, they would. Yeah. I think they were just like, Oh, Laura, here she goes again, talking about all this stuff <laughs> you don't care about. Um, but yeah, finally with NFTs, like I'm like, Oh, you could make NFTs. They're like, Oh yeah, I guess I could make NFTs. So Yes, finally, finally, my own friends are somewhat more interested, although I do have some friends in the audience here. And uh, actually, I don't think these are the ones that are interested. But anyway, <laughs> so, so you said that the reaction from the Ethereum community has been positive. But one of the things you talk about a little bit in the book, too, is like the Bitcoin maximalists, which you can explain if people don't know. But have you gotten any like, hate from the Bitcoin maxi crowd who's, who hates Ethereum and probably doesn't want a, a detailed book written about it? No, I haven't. Um, you know, the Ethereum crowd has been a somewhat mixed reception, I would say, um, just because, um, I, yeah, like I, I do know that one of my early, so I did send the book, um, to some early people just because frankly, I'm I'm probably going to do NFTs for my book launch. And I uh, was like, Hey, like you're into NFTs. Do you have any ideas of what I could do? (laughs) So I'll send you my book. Um, And I remember one of them DM'd me and was just like, Whoa, like, you know, you really dug in on the salacious details. 
Um, and I think they were just really taken aback by the book. Um, but then I have heard from them since, and I think they've come around and like, actually they realized, oh, well, it, it's actually really meaningful and positive that Ethereum has gone on to achieve so much despite all of um, the craziness that, you know, was mm -hmm. part of the early years. So, um, but I do think, you know, it's, I think it's shocking for people um, mm -hmm. that, especially if they're very pro Ethereum and I don't know if, yeah, maybe they, they don't like all this news being aired, but, you know, I've said this before, like I wrote this book kind of as a historical document. I was just thinking about people a hundred years from now, you know, they're going to want to know like what happened at this time, because I personally think that all this technology is just going to change things. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's important to know what really happened. And so I wasn't going to sugarcoat things or like even, you know, cause obviously I have a podcast to think about. And so a part of me was like, well, I guess if I pull my punches, then maybe I can like retain my access from a podcast. But like, I just wouldn't do that because then the book wouldn't be as good. And like, it wouldn't be an, a, a very accurate historical document. And like, and frankly, who cares about my access? Like, I'm the only one who cares, you know? And I was like, I can still talk to other interesting people. And so I just was like, I'm just going to do the story as accurately as I can and not care about any of that. And like, just really try to make it, yeah, what mm -hmm. really happened. Yeah. I mean, those details are what make the book and feeling like you're inside those rooms. Yes, there are salacious details and those are really interesting. And I think like if it, if it happened, it's part of the story and not just the salacious details, but like, I think people will be surprised at how much in the early years they were kind of just running around like chickens with their heads cut off, like didn't like so little strategy, so little like alignment. Like that was something that I, f I found to be one of the most surprising things. What do you think? Like what are, without spoiling, you know, anything that you don't want to spoil, like what were some or one really big revelation that you had that's in the book or one really big scoop um, in the book, aside from the one we talked about earlier um, that you're you know, really excited about getting out well, into the world. The biggest one, of course, was revealing who was behind the Dow attack, which, um, you know, having that kind of news for a book, oh my God, like, I mean, there were just so many things. So first of all, once we realized we had it, then it was just like, oh, how do we relay this without getting scooped because there's so much time between when you wrap up a book and then when you're going to publish it. And like, you know, for that kind of information, I didn't, I just, we, we were stressed out about like somebody else, like getting the name and then somehow doing their own story before we could publish right. it. So that was like a big deal. Um, then, um, frankly, honestly though, since that didn't happen and I didn't get scooped, <laughs> publishing that on the day the book came out was awesome. Like it just, you know, it just, I mean, who, who else can publish a book with like huge, huge news like that? You right. know, it's very rare. It's like pretty much near impossible, frankly. Um, and so, yeah, I just was very excited that we managed to pull that off because there were just so many things along the way where it was like, ah, what's going to happen. Um, but yeah, I feel like that helps, uh, you know, get a lot more attention momentum. on the book. Yeah. Especially on that first day. And, um, yeah, it was a little dicey though, because we got, we figured that out so late in the process when like you do what's called three last passes with the book and with each progressive last pass, you're supposed to have fewer and fewer changes. <laughs> and right before I was supposed to turn in the second pass is when I got new data that I wanted to pursue more. I wanted to keep reporting. And I, I remember my fact checker and I were like, should we tell them we have this new data? Like, what should we do? Like, we're trying to figure it out because we didn't have 
something new to write. We just wanted more time mm-hmm. to like go through this. And um, I finally did decide to tell my publisher, but they were like, no, 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 no. You can't do more reporting. Like, you know, this book is nearly done. Like, da, da, da. And um, I did still, you know, send it on to um, another company that I was working with. And then, of course, you know, we, we did get information that mm-hmm. we were able to to use to pinpoint somebody. But um, I, uh, you know, just had this moment because, like, you know, you don't want to piss your publisher off at the yeah. last minute. <laughs> like, so it was just... It was just it was difficult. Um, but then of course, once, once I was like, we have an identity, then, then yes, we delayed publication. And, um, but yeah, like if you read that section in the book, the epilogue about, uh, that, that period is like much shorter than the article that eventually came out, the art, not that period, but about that investigation is shorter than what eventually came out online because, um, they, they just said things like, you can't go over a certain number of words because then, um, if that adds pages to the book, it could even affect things like the jacket cover <laughs> and they're like, and we cannot make more, you know? So it's just like, so fascinating. Just, yeah. Right. It's a different world, writing a book, different world in podcasting, exactly. writing, writing articles like we do. Do you yeah. feel like you want to turn around and do another one? I mean, a lot's happened. Yes. Okay. I definitely so we can do. expect, I had so much fun writing this book. I definitely want to do it again. I can't wait, honestly. Actually. That's not usually what I, what I have heard from listening to interviews with authors. Yeah, it's no. very difficult and people often want to never do it again. This was my favorite thing I've ever done professionally. So I would definitely like, like to do it again for sure. Well, I want to get into some audience questions. Okay. Um, we got a stack here. So see, um, is it tough being a woman in tech journalism? Um, sometimes, um, you know, something that's interesting is at least in crypto, um, like something I've noticed is people will recognize racism, like when they see it and, and they'll call it out. Like I've, like I've had moments on Twitter where, um, you know, cause I'm not as much as it might seem like I am on Twitter all the time. I am actually not. So I remember one time I, uh, logged in and I suddenly realized like, Oh, somebody must've said something racist to me because all these people had already like piled on that person before I like even noticed. Um, but people, especially in crypto are much more blind to sexism, like Mm -hmm. way more blind. Like they're in full on denial that it even exists. And they will tweet at you about how it doesn't exist. And women just aren't interested because there are no barriers to crypto. And therefore like, they just don't want to be a part of it. And I'm just like, uh, really, mm-hmm. you know, so, um, you know, at those moments, I'm a little bit like, let me, you know, I just want to like take you back to my childhood and like explain all kinds of things that I've learned. Right. You, know? so you just can't spend the time. Yeah, exactly. And were you covering tech more generally prior to focusing? No, I was covering personal finance, which okay. is like a totally different world. And yeah. How does that compare though? Personal finance beat crypto beat in terms of the reaction, at just being a woman in journalism, like, was it harder in one or the other? Would you say it's similar? Um, I mean, you know, one thing I will say is that I'm actually shielded from a lot of the stuff. I think that a lot of other women in crypto face just because, you know, when I started covering this calling up and especially in 2015, when nobody was paying attention and crypto companies or blockchain, as they were called blockchain companies at that time where Bitcoin companies were just dying for any attention to call and be like, I'm, I'm working on a story for Forbes and I want to write about your company. Like they were like, 
okay, great. And they, and, and they treat me so much better than they would just like any other random woman in crypto. So I actually feel like I've just been shielded from so much of that, which is not to say that I haven't had bad experiences because I've definitely had the people who have never worked a day of journalism in their life who try to tell me how to do my job. And I'm like, do you know I've been doing this for more than two decades? Um, you know, and they're, they're like, you should do it like this. Da, da, da. And I'm like, I think I know what I'm doing. <laughs> so... Um, yeah. That's I'm sure. Thing. I'm sure. Yeah. Any any woman journalist on any beat, I'm sure, is, is getting that. That's certainly <laughs> something I have experienced myself. Um, is there a crazy story or experience that didn't make the book that you wish did? Oh, good question. That's a really good question. Um, I will have to think about that. Um, I mean, you said but when we were chatting backstage, you had so much just on like on the cutting room floor, right? Just like details and. Yeah. Like you mentioned Coinbase early on, like how much, how did you, how did you make that decision about what to cut and how much did you have? You know, I have over? to say like the whole Poloniak story, I almost cut, um, just because it does feel very random, but I was also a little bit like, if I don't include this in here, then, um, cause like Poloniak's was just, they, they, you know how they always say like, you can never time, um, your buys and sells but they definitely timed the market and they like sold at the top and they just sort of, you know, they, they made off the best of anybody in terms of like that whole mania. And so I just, I just sort of felt like, oh, I got to include it. And they, and they were the exchange where, you know, it was the top exchange for trading ETH. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was, it just felt a little bit random to work in. Um, but honestly, yeah, I can't think of any off the top of my head. You kept the really good stuff in there. So yeah, there were like, there honestly, the, the one thing that was a little bit annoying was like, as I was definitely getting very close to the end. There were a bunch of people that came out of the woodwork and were like, Oh, I heard you talk to so-and-so. Do you want to talk to me? And I'd be like, (laughs) I would have talked to you before if you, you know, if you had like responded to my 10 emails before. Um, and I I did manage to, yeah, have like just a few, uh, lines from certain people like that, that came in at the very last minute. But, um, yeah, I can't think of anything. Um, yeah. I can't think of anything. I can think of though materials that were promised to me that then people did not deliver on and how, um, I will just say, so yeah, this is such a funny story. I have to tell this story. Um, and there was one source who did not speak to me for years, even though I reached out multiple, multiple times. And then I don't know what happened, but suddenly they were like, okay, I'm going to talk to you. And then, then it was like texts all day, like emails all day. Like they were, you know, talked for me to, uh, uh, for hours on the phone, like just were giving me tons of stuff. And then they were like, I have a hard drive with all the information from da, 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 da. And, you know, they like promised me this hard drive. So then we scheduled a meeting to go over the contents of the hard drive. I show up to the meeting and they're not there. And then I'm texting them like, Hey, where are you? Whatever. And I realized I am blocked on every single platform. They completely Oof. ghosted me. I was blocked on email, on every single chat app. Like just, and this was after, I was like, what? Ha- I have no idea to this date what happened. All I know is that eventually for fact checking, um, I did not communicate to this person. My fact checker reached out and they spoke to my fact checker. They were slightly belligerent to the fact checker, but it was just weird. It was like, okay, you're, you're, you give me the cold shoulder for years. Then you finally like, it's like 180 and you're just revealing everything. Then the moment when you're going to give me this thing that I'm, you know, interested in <laughs> the prize, you just hard completely drive. cut everything off again. It was so weird, but must you have know. Been spooked. Some, some, something spooked them. You yeah. never know. I mean, crypto yeah, people, all I can the say struggle. is, you know, they're always entertaining. <laughs> so, 
Um, if you had to make a guess, what would you say is going to be the next space to go mainstream via crypto? Essentially, what will be the next crate? Uh, what will be the next NFT craze? Oh, I think DAOs. Yeah, it's already happening, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's so many different DAOs, by the way. And they're very weird. Like, some of them are like Fry's DAO or like the DAO to buy the Denver Broncos. And I don't know, there, there's just a lot of weird DAOs out there right now. So, um, what book would be more about the technical and theory of Bitcoin cryptocurrency? What books would be more? So, maybe like book recommendations you have about. Um, so for more technical, um, probably maybe the Andreas Antonopoulos books. Um, like I'm assuming this person maybe is a programmer. So, because I think those are kind of more technical focused, um, for people who want to read a narrative version, uh, that's similar to my book, Digital Gold by Nathaniel Popper is, is a great Mm -hmm. book about the early days of Bitcoin. Um, for, Books that are more like primers, but maybe not so technical, um, you know, things like The Age of Cryptocurrency or um, uh, The Truth Machine, also by the same authors, uh, Michael Casey and Paul Vigna, or um, if you're interested in kind of like the economic economics of Bitcoin and the monetary policy around that, then The Bitcoin Standard is a good book um, that, you know, is kind of looking at Bitcoin through the Austrian economics angle. Um, yeah, but honestly, there's so many really good books on, on Bitcoin and crypto, especially if you're looking for more of that kind of like primer type thing. Do you think we're going to get like an Uber type movie or TV show about any of these early crypto? Um, I don't know. We'll have to see what happens with that. (laughs) Um, do you, do you interact with the crypto community in any way to stay in the know, understand the industry better? Example would be joining a discord channel, being a part of a DAO. Yes. So I, I am a member of many discords, but I'm not going to lie. I am not good with the discord because I think I'm like kind of too old to like really get it. Like I have, I sometimes struggle with the discord. Um, but yeah, now I have my own discord. So, um, I, maybe I will learn to manage it better through my own discord. Um, but yeah, no, I definitely join a lot of these. And then for, as you'll notice in the book, um, I used a lot of the forums and and those conversations in there to kind of fill out like what the community was feeling and thinking and, you know, the conversation around a lot of these events. And so I definitely actually that's part of the reason why I join a lot of these, because I'm like, oh, I don't know in the future which one of these I'll want to write about. But I know I will probably want to, you know, uh, put some of that conversation and whatever I work on in the future. So I just try to join a lot. Well, one of the things that some other crypto reporters have been having a dialogue about, like on Twitter, is whether it is appropriate for crypto reporters to invest or to even to even dabble with crypto. What is your philosophy on that? How have you approached that? So my personal philosophy is um, similar to the Forbes one, which is that if you own something that you cover, that if you disclose it, that that's fine. Um, but since I'm independent now and I don't work for Forbes and I want to be open to be able to freelance for any publication, I actually don't personally own any at the moment. Um, my business actually owns a little bit of Ethan Solana just because I had to buy, um, my like domain names, my Ethereum domain names. It's like, so instead of like a random string of numbers and letters, I can have laurashin.eth and people could like send right. me their NFTs or whatever they're sending me. Um, and I just did that cause I get so many imposters like on every channel 
And um, if I don't secure those kinds of things, then people could scam other people. So I bought ETH for that. And then uh, I now have some ETH and Solana for these NFTs that I plan to launch for the book. Um, aside from perhaps Ming, what were the people you really you really liked to have interviews for the book? Oh, oh what, like what, that I didn't get to Yeah, interview? I think what people would you, would you really like to interview for the book that you didn't? Um, so that's a good question because I'm just trying to remember who didn't speak to me. Um, so, well, as you know from my Twitter spat with Charles Hoskinson, so I only interviewed him one time. And then he didn't, um, well, actually, so then he agreed to do this follow-up interview with me and it was like multiple people were supposed to be in the call and they all ghosted me, like nobody showed up. (laughs) So then I emailed multiple times about that, um, but then they didn't respond. So then I just sent them the fact checking and I sent multiple emails with all the facts about that were going to be about him in the book and no response. And it was like multiple emails that I sent it to. And again, just nobody responded. Um, But, you know, to have his perspective would have been great. Um, I mean, frankly, just for anybody who didn't speak to me, like having their perspective would have been good because that, that's just my personal opinion is that like, especially if people are saying negative things about you, it's good to just have your voice be heard in that. So you'll notice, um, there are multiple people. Yeah. That took that, took that opportunity. And I personally think it like makes the story better. Like, you know, people are criticizing Anthony or Joe or, you know, whatever. And then, but they have their voice included. And I, that, that's my personal opinion is like, that's good because then people understand what their perspective is. Um, for people who don't have a lot of knowledge on crypto, do you have some suggestions for resources where they can learn more about the industry and, and investing and all that? So probably for um, more beginner types, I actually do recommend my podcast. I'm not just saying that in a self-serving way, but because um, like people on my surveys will say things like, oh, you know, you, you go deep, but you also always explain things. And so I know that I can feel comfortable sending your podcast to any of my friends who don't know anything about crypto. So I've, I've just had people say that to me personally, like I said, in my surveys. Um, so I know that my listeners feel that way. Um, but there's also um, right now this really interesting new um, like website, I guess it's like rabbit hole and they, I think kind of do education and um, teaching people like how to use the stuff too, which is really cool. Um, A16Z has what they call the crypto canon, uh, which is a really good list of resources. And um, if you kind of, uh, maybe you're interested in slightly more technical things and especially Bitcoin focused. I know Jameson Lopp, L-O-P-P, has a good list that he keeps. And then probably the other good set of beginner resources is Linda Shea, spelled X-I-E. She um, writes a lot of explainers on all kinds of things. Yeah, As particularly, I think, maybe more on the Ethereum side. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, she, she's really good at that and, and just has covered a lot of topics. Do you listen to other crypto podcasts? And and also, do you, what about sort of crypto news sites? Like, are there any that you would recommend that are, that you reference most often? Yeah. So probably the main three that I think most people read are CoinDesk, DeBlock, and Decrypt. Um, actually, honestly, the information has a great crypto newsletter. Um, I also do a newsletter uh, Monday through Friday. Um, but there are so many good ones. The Defiant does... Um, well, they, they started off focusing on NF, or on DeFi, but now they, they kind of do more in crypto. But it, it tends to be more Ethereum, I think, you know, a little bit less like Bitcoin type stuff. Um, I mean, there are so many 
good resources now compared to especially when I first started yeah. covering this. Um, but one are the, oh yeah. And then in terms of podcasts, um, I mean, there, again, there's so many good podcasts. Um, one that's kind of more on that beginner level that I like is, um, Patrick O'Shaughnessy's invest like the best. And he does, um, a new one called web three breakdowns. And I feel like that's also, if you're kind of yeah, more because like, so like mine, because there are some crypto podcasts where they just focus on like DeFi or, you know, DAOs or whatever, um, or, or NFTs. But I feel like mine, I just cover like all of them, uh, which is better, I think, also for beginners. And um, I would say his is sort of more on that level as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's very recently been a huge explosion, too, just on the media side of crypto coverage. Like Bloomberg, I think, has hired like 10 people to cover the yeah. crypto business. So I guess a lot more competition, but just a lot. It's good because it'll bring a lot more accountability, I think, to the sector, especially now when like yeah. there is just so like the the speed in which it moves. I mean, how do you feel like you can keep up with the developments, especially this past year when you were working on a book? Probably didn't I have mean, a lot of time. Definitely not. I feel like nobody can keep yeah. up with them. But that's like so good for my personality because um like, yeah, just, I think if things become too easy for me, I have, I just lose interest. So like, I like that challenge and like, that's what makes it fun. And, and that feeling that I like can't quite keep up is like what I really like actually. Extra motivation to kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we wrap, there's a tradition here, um, at the Commonwealth Inforum to ask every guest, um, what your 60 second idea to change the world is. <laughs> no pressure. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, 60 second idea to, to change, change the, the world. world. Um, so, okay. So this one is like not a big idea, but this was such a profound, um, kind of like statement from a book that, um, I came across through, uh, this writing workshop that one of my mentors, um, teaches and he actually read it from, he actually got it from a book called, I think, How to Be a Grown-Up, if I remember correctly. So I need to read this book. All I know is the one quote, but I should probably read the whole book. But the one quote, which I think is so profound, and I think if everybody acted this way, then the world would change a lot. And it is, um, ask for 100% of what you want from 100% of people 100% of the time. And yeah, I mean, we've been talking about all the problems that Vitalik encountered because he definitely didn't do that. Um, and <laughs> I do feel advice. like the world would work so much better if people did that. So yeah, if we could all adopt that philosophy, I feel like it would kind of transform things. Well, thanks so much for chatting with me about your book, Cryptopians. Um, yeah. a reminder, you can, you can purchase the book here, um, or through your preferred bookseller. Um, and if you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming this year a possibility, visit the Commonwealth website to learn more about that. Um, Thanks, everybody, for coming. Yeah, thanks for your questions. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.